1: See, those who love the world are indeed enemies of God because they are part of an evil system. And that's what, that's what we mean by the world in this context, the world that is hostile and opposed to God. So you join forces with that world, you are in opposition to God. It is this very system headed up by Satan, the God and prince of this world, that is hostile towards the truth and therefore propagates falsehood and error and sets itself upon a course of rebellion that is characterized by greed, selfish ambition, and pride.
2: Can you just picture someone who has one foot in the kingdom of darkness and one foot in the kingdom of light? Isn't that the way a lot of Christians are living each day? They are walking a tightrope between the world and holiness and not succeeding very well. I guess I should say we and not they. We are all in this battle. That's why it's so important to hear the Word of God and put it into practice. We are bombarded by the philosophy of the world every day. It gets terribly confusing to sort it all out. It's great that you are listening to this broadcast. That means you're interested in pursuing God's plan for your life. Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, is sharing from 1 John, a message series on the tests of worldliness. I am convinced that God has something to say to you that will bring lasting change into your life today. Let's listen carefully. Here's Pastor Steve with today's message on Verse by Verse.
1: One of the most tragic figures in the Bible is a man by the name of Demas, D-E-M-A-S, Demas. He's mentioned several times in the New Testament. Twice he is included in greetings from the Apostle Paul as he greets two specific churches, he says, Demas is with me, sends his greetings. And he says that because he was a fellow minister of the gospel with Paul. He was a colleague of Paul's. And according to Philemon, verses 23 and 24, Demas was associated with the ministry not only of Paul, but of other great men. He's listed along with two gospel writers, Luke and Mark. He's also listed along with Epaphras and Aristarchus, two leaders in the early church. But even though Demas was the colleague of the great apostle Paul and these other men of God, men who demonstrated daily the reality of Jesus Christ in their own lives, we read these very sad, tragic words about Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Demas, Paul said, having loved this present world, has departed or deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Paul was on the verge of being executed by the Romans because of his faith in Christ. He's in a prison there. And he says, Demas abandon me. He abandoned me and went to the city of Thessalonica. And the reason for his desertion, Paul says, is simply that he loved this present world. Now, Paul doesn't specify give any details about what Demas found so attractive in this present world that would have caused him to leave the apostle and the ministry of the gospel. But it must have been something, must have had something to do with the city of Thessalonica because that's where he went. Perhaps it was the allurement of a woman in that city. Maybe, we don't know. Maybe it had something to do with material gain that he would find there. It's possible. Or maybe he just was attracted to the Greek philosophy that dominated Thessalonica. Now, we don't know if Demas ever repented of his sin. I I hope so. We don't know if he repented of the sin of forsaking Paul and loving the world. I certainly hope that Demas did, but we aren't told in Scripture. But if he did not, if he never repented, and that was it, and he went back into the world, then it reveals a tragedy about him, a tragic truth About him. Although he had some kind of association with Christ and the gospel, if he never repented of this sin, then his love of the world demonstrated that he had never really been converted. In other words, he loved the world because he still belonged to the world. He had never been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. His heart had never been transformed by Christ, so he still had a heart to love the things of this world that, that the world's evil system offered him. Now, Demas is not the only professing Christian who has ever loved this present world. For over 2,000 years of church history, there have been many people who claim to love Jesus Christ, but the truth of the matter is that what they really have loved wasn't Christ at all, but the world that hates Christ. That's hostile towards Christ. That is opposed to Christ. Opposed to the standards of holiness. In fact, James in his little letter at the end of the New Testament says that whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. You're not even neutral. You're fighting God. See, those who love the world are indeed enemies of God because they are part of an evil system. And that's what, that's what we mean by the world in this context. The world that is hostile And opposed to God. So you join forces with that world, you are in opposition to God. It is this very system headed up by Satan, the God and prince of this world, that is hostile towards the truth and therefore propagates falsehood and error and sets itself upon a course of rebellion that is characterized by greed, selfish ambition and pride. And because this world is so diametrically opposed to God, one's attitude towards the world becomes a very clear indication and a valid test as to where one stands in relation to Jesus Christ. Those who continuously love the world without any kind of change, no desire to change, prove that they are not true believers. And those who hate and oppose the world as an ungodly system, even though they may briefly embrace worldliness and then repent, prove that they are true believers. Now, this brings us to our continuing study of 1 John. So I invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, because this is the precise message that we've been studying from the Apostle John as he addresses the test of worldliness in 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 through 17. Let me read it to you again. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, in context, we know this. Those of you who have been studying with us through 1 John, we understand that this letter is about a series of tests that John gives to the believers to give them assurance of their salvation. They were troubled about their salvation because Gnostic teachers had come into the church and had troubled them, saying because they didn't have the kind of knowledge and enlightenment that they had, they were not really Christians. Now, these Gnostic teachers have left the church. That John goes on to speak about this in the next section. They went out from us because they were not part of us. But having gone out from the church, they still had their influence in the church. And they left these Christians very troubled. And John writes this letter to give them assurance of their salvation. 1 John five thirteen. These things have I written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so he presents a series of tests to them, whereby if they pass these tests, they can know that they're really Christians, because non-Christians could not possibly indicate in their life and evidence of their life that they really know Christ. So in chapter 1, he speaks about true believers walk in the light. True believers confess their sins. In chapter 2, he talks about true believers have a desire to obey the Lord. This is their watchfulness in life. They are looking out to and making an effort to obey the Word of God. True believers love the brethren So Those are a series of tests. Now, he comes in chapter 2, these verses that I've just read to you, and he gives another test. This is the test of loving the world or worldliness. Now, understand that the primary point of this passage is to expose unbelievers. Unbelievers as letting them know you are not true Christians because you really do continue to love the world. But also, in doing that, he's giving assurance to true believers who no longer love the world. They don't want to embrace the world. But keep in mind, that's the, that's the primary point of this, to give assurance to believers, to expose unbelievers as unbelievers. But also, these verses, in a secondary sense, help Christians, and I realize this isn't John's primary point, but they do help Christians to guard their hearts against being seduced by the world and temporarily falling into the sin of worldliness. While it is true that no true Christian will permanently love the world, not of his heart has ever really been changed by Christ. However, there are times and there are seasons in life when we as believers can be so easily drawn into the world's allurement and temporarily dishonor our Lord by embracing the very sins that he died to set us free from. So understand as we go through this, that all this is involved in this passage as we continue and conclude our third study on these verses i remind you that john not only forbids us to love the world but in these verses he actually gives us reasons for not loving the world he doesn't just say don't love the world he says don't love the world because and there are actually three reasons that are found in this passage These are the reasons that also serve us as the basis for why, as a believer, we need to make sure that we never, ever, even for a brief season of life, go back into the world. Now, reason number one, and I review, but I want you, it's been a while since we've studied this, I want you to see this. Reason number one why we must not love the world is because the love for the world and love for the Father are incompatible, incompatible. At the beginning, verse 15, by giving us a command, do not love the world or the things in the world, John then gives us the first reason why we must not love the world. When he says at the beginning or the middle of verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, what John is teaching by these brief but pointed words is that no one who loves the world also loves the Father. In other words, habitual, and that's what he's talking about, habitual love, ongoing, continuous love for the world and love for God cannot exist in the same heart at the same time. They are what we call mutually exclusive. And the reason for this impossibility is because at our conversion, God planted within us a new nature. Sometimes we refer to it as a new heart, but it's a new nature what Peter calls a divine nature. And this new nature loves God and loves the things of God. This is the transformation in our lives. This is why we're new creatures in Christ. The new heart has no longer the old affections for the things of this world. We, as I I said, we may still be and we are still tempted to love the things of the world. And at times temporarily even fall back to love the things of this world. But we don't unceasingly continue as an ongoing lifestyle in those worldly sins. When we do fall, if we do fall back into those sins, we do repent. It's a mark of being a believer. Because the things of this world no longer hold the same appeal, the same attraction to us as they once did. We now have affection for the things of God. Beloved, that's the supernatural work of God in our lives. We love his word. Because of regeneration, we love to speak to Him in prayer. We cry out, Abba, Father. We want to honor Christ with our lives, the way we speak, with how we treat others. We are attracted and we embrace and we try to emulate and demonstrate the virtues of humility and submission to His authority, to honesty to morality, to compassion, to sacrificial love for others, for serving others, for esteeming others more important than ourselves, and on and on it goes. We have those affections for those things that that people in the world don't care about at all. We love them because of regeneration, because of a new heart. Folks, this is why your unsaved members don't understand you. It's because you are a new creation in Christ, and therefore you have desires and you have ambitions and you have values that are foreign to them. That's why we are called by Peter, aliens and strangers in this world. As the song says, we are just a passing through. That's why Paul told the Philippians that our real citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of whatever country we are citizens of, but our real citizenship is in heaven, and that's what we look for. We look for a better country. We live in this world, but we are not people who belong to and embrace this world's evil system. That's why we are looked upon, Peter says, as a peculiar people, an odd people. Now look at look with me at First Peter chapter two. Peter just kind of nails this this truth when he says in First Peter chapter two. Verses 9 and, and 10, he writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim, watch this, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We've been called out of the world, the world of darkness and into his marvelous life. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We've been called out of the darkness of this world's kingdom in order to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And the world can't possibly understand this. Not at all. Why? Because they're still in darkness. And we we understand that. We should understand that. So, So don't be troubled if they can't see what you're about. So the first reason John gives us for not loving the world is because love for the world and love for the Father are incompatible. You cannot have a converted heart and yet still love the things of this world. Second reason John gives for not loving the world is this. The things of this world are in opposition to God. They're in opposition to God. They're not of God at all. Notice what he says in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... And the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, in this verse, John mentions three specific attitudes that not only come from the world, but they characterize the world. And therefore, they must not be loved by us. But understand that John's primary point in bringing up these three attitudes is to say that they, along with all other ungodly attitudes of this world, do not, find their origin in God. They're not from him. They aren't even remotely related to his holy character. They don't find their source in him at all. In fact, they're opposed to him. And he's opposed to them. These sinful attitudes and everything else in the world. God is opposed to it. The world opposes him, he opposes the world. So everything associated with the world owes its origin to a way of life that is hostile and antagonistic towards God. Therefore, we are to love none of it. None of it. And in loving none of the world's evil system, John now highlights three things that we are not to love in particular. Why? I don't know that this is an exhaustive list, but the sins and attitudes that he mentions here are so characteristic of the pagan way of life that's contrary to God's ways that John feels compelled by the Spirit of God to highlight these attitudes. The first attitude John tells us not to love because it is so characteristic of the world is the lust of the flesh. Now, we've already looked at this, but let me just mention it briefly. What John means by this expression, the lust of the flesh, is the cravings that come from the unregenerate sinful hearts of the unsaved. By flesh, he doesn't mean the skin. He means the unsaved in this context. The unsaved, unregenerate heart lusts and desires certain things. In other words, the reason we don't love the world is because the world lives for gratifying its sinful desires. And that's not what we're about anymore, at all. What John is saying then is that the pagan way of life is a lusting after things that give the unsaved person wicked pleasure. And we saw last time we studied this from Galatians chapter 5 that Paul lists some of the deeds and lusts of the flesh. Galatians five nineteen and 20 list them as immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. These are the deeds of the flesh that people of the world commit. And you know what? They desire to commit this. Their heart gravitates to this. This is what they want. They long for these things because they are attracted to these things. But not us. Not us. God is opposed to the lust of the flesh. Therefore, we're opposed to them as well. Second attitude, now we move on to new territory. The second attitude that John tells us not to love because it is so paganly characteristic of the world and so unlike God is, he calls it the lust of the eyes. Now, there is no question that the root of our problem, our sin problem, is the lust that comes from our sinful hearts. Our hearts are evil. So understand that is the root. But so often our lusts are aroused by what we see with our eyes. And that's what John means by the lust of the eyes. He's not talking simply about sexual lust here, but the covetousness, the desires that are often aroused by what we see visually. Here's how C. J. Mahaney, in his book on worldliness, describes the lust of the eyes. He writes. Our hearts may generate sinful cravings, but they can also be aroused by what we see. The eyes themselves are a precious gift from God, but they're also windows into our soul, providing opportunities for us not simply to observe, but to covet. He writes, please don't limit this to sexual sin. Practically anything can stimulate greed in our souls. So what John then is referring to is this true? The world is characterized by a craving to have and acquire those things that we see. That's how the world lives. I see this. I want this. That's what John is saying. In other words, the eyes are like windows that let in all kinds of temptations that turn into coveting. We see something. We want it. It arouses sinful lust. And desires. Think of some of the examples that Scripture gives us of individuals who sinned because they lusted to have something. And not only examples, but some of the clear statements about this, warnings to us. For example, we're told in Genesis that Eve looked upon the forbidden fruit tree as a delight to her eyes. There must have been something so pleasing, so beautiful about this tree that she said it delighted her eyes and she wanted it. Even though God said, Don't, she said yes. King David lustfully looked upon Bathsheba as she was bathing, and it led to adultery and murder. It started with his eyes. Jesus spoke against a man using his eyes to commit mental adultery with a woman. James writes against people in the church showing favoritism to those who look wealthy. They look wealthy. They come into the church, and James says, by the way, they're dressed. You can see they're they're a man of means. And you say, come and sit up front here. But someone comes in who doesn't look as prosperous. In fact, by his clothing, it's obvious that he's poor. He has very little money to contribute to the church or the prestige of the church, and you don't have him join you up front. James says, that's wrong. But it starts by looking. By looking. I might covet that man's money for the church because he's dressed well. Listen, we live in a world that aims at seducing us through our eyes. Television. Cinema. Magazines. The internet. Advertising billboards. And the goal of all these visuals is to create in us a lust to covet what we see.
2: Isn't it scary to think that we can be seduced by what comes into our hearts through our eyes? It would be great if we could flip a switch or push a button and turn off our response mechanism. It's not quite that simple. God is giving us an understanding of how we function, of how sin works, and how the devil tries to draw us away from what is right and good and holy. Let's not surrender without a fight. We don't always win every battle against temptation, but God has given us what we need to win. Verse by Verse Radio is here to help you in your spiritual battle. You can take advantage of many resources that are found on our website, versebyverseradio.org. Call us at 727-239-0306 for help and counsel. We need your help too. This ministry is supported by our listeners. If you would like to send a gift to help us stay on the air, you can do that by phone, mail, or even online. We appreciate your faithful support and partnership. Join us again next time for another message in the series. Until then, this is Jerry Pruden saying, See you then, here on Verse by Verse.